Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. After 20 million global deaths, the World Health Organization says COVID is over. We look back at our province's response and what we did right and wrong. Plus, tourism overload. The Gulf Islands push back on Airbnb and Verbo as families get pushed out of local housing. And all hail the king or not. We look at this weekend's coronation of King Charles and the monarchy's waning popularity in 21st century Canada. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's talk cooling for a moment. Now, you remember the extreme heat dome we had in 2021? According to the uh, BC Coroner Services, uh, the temperature surpassed 40 degrees Celsius for days, and those who died included the elderly and vulnerable people living in buildings without air conditioning. Now, during the week of June 25th to July 1st, 2021, uh, more than 800 deaths were investigated by the BC Coroner Service. The Coroner Service later identified 619 of those deaths uh, were due to the heat dome. Now, there's been conversations since then of what we need to do uh, to stay safe, from cooling stations uh, being operated by municipalities to keeping an eye on our, on our neighbours as well. Well, this week, the Lower Mainland Local Government Association uh, have been meeting at the Harrison Hot Springs to discuss local issues and policies which can be implemented region-wide. Well, one of the proposals put forward was to ask the provincial government to make changes to the Residential Tenancy Act, where landlords who are responsible for heating in a unit would now be responsible, uh, responsible for cooling as well. Joining me now to discuss this motion and what happened is Nadine Nakagawa, a city councillor from New Westminster. Uh, Ms. Nakagawa, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Walk me through the uh, the proposal and what happened. Well, one of the um, components of the conference is to bring forward resolutions that might be actions that we want to take or things that we want the provincial government to do. Mm-hmm. And so this was an ask that the provincial government would consider changing the Residential Tenancy Act, like you said, to include cooling in rental units. And there's quite a spirited debate on the floor. Um, you know, some people um, sharing their experiences of dropping off cooling units for seniors during during the heat dome in 2021 and the impact that had. And in the end, it did not pass. Um, my colleagues from across the Lower Mainland did not um, support that resolution. Why do you think it did not pass? Well, I mean, I, there isn't a lot of renters in that room, to be honest. Um, it's one area of local government, you know, one form of representation that I think we don't see a lot of tenants who are represented at local government level. So that experience is quite far away from folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality of the housing situation might not be quite as apparent to them as it is someone, to someone like me who is a renter in New Westminster. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, overall, I think we see a lot of reluctance to take action, I think, on behalf of, uh, of tenants in the region. And, you know, there's a lot of reluctance, I think, to put any additional burden on landlords or even the corporations that own a lot of the rentals in our, in our region. So mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I can only speculate as to why it didn't pass, but um, I will say I'm very disappointed. Uh, motions uh, can fail. They can fail two or three times, uh, and it may take a few years to, for them to be accepted and implemented. Uh, and this may be one of them. I don't know. So let's just say it did pass. In your mind, in all practical purposes, how would it work? Would you be asking uh, landlords to put in an air conditioning unit f- in their unit, or, or would it be uh, something portable, let's say something you could pick up at a, at a Canadian Tire or a Costco? Uh, when you talk cooling system, what are we talking about? Well, I think that's one of the strengths of the motion is that it wasn't prescriptive. And I think that we could have different options that would work for different housing tenures, for different regions of the province. So I think it wasn't prescriptive, and I don't think it has to be that specific. Mm -hmm. But I think when you say maybe it'll pass in future years, what's troubling to me is how many more of our neighbours have to die before we actually start to take the impacts of climate seriously. when I've had your colleague on the show before, uh, the mayor, uh, Patrick Johnston, we've talked about cooling stations in, in municipalities. Are there other things you, communities can do rather than, let's say, ask landlords to spend more dollars on a cooling system? Could it be cooling stations? Could there be other ways to deal with this challenge of, of, of warmer temperatures? Absolutely, we can and should do all those things. Um, the city of New West has and will have cooling centers, like you said, in facilities like Libraries will have misting stations outdoors. Um, we're, we're, we're piloting uh, projects where um, Fraser Health will loan out air conditioning units. But we've also heard from folks, including people with disabilities and seniors, that it's not always possible for people to leave their building. And so for that reason, I do think that the air conditioning or the cooling units in buildings is absolutely crucial. Um, just having one room that you can go to where you can escape deadly heat in your home is crucial if you're not able to leave. Can that be done in older buildings in your mind? Yeah, it has to. I mean, I live on the third floor of an older rental building, mm-hmm. and I will say in that summer heat wave, it was deadly hot. I had to go stay in a friend's basement, and I took my cats with me because I didn't even think they could survive it. So I think it can be. I think it has to be. And some of the barriers, you know, for folks, people say, well, why don't you just do it yourself? Besides the availability and the affordability of these types of units, um, some units don't have like appropriate windows that would that would work for sort of the standard cooling units. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard reports of, of landlords or building managers saying, no, you can't install that in the building for, for lots of different reasons. So, um, yeah, it, it can be done. And I think it absolutely has to be done. I want to touch on your comments you made earlier about uh, elected officials not uh, uh, reflecting uh, how people live today. Uh, you know, many of our, certainly in our MLAs um, and stories that I've read uh, are not renters. Most of them are single family homeowners. Some of them have investment properties. So they're part of the um, the, the the old guard, not the old guy, because the old guard may not be the right word, but certainly those that have the single family home and they may not be renters, as you say, but they were able to enter the market in a different time, different era. In my time as an MLA, I was also one of them. I own a single family home. Um, but as you say, there aren't many people who are elected who are renters. Uh, speak to me a little bit about, do you think that still uh, impacts decisions like this particular motion that's, that, that, is, uh, that, as you say, didn't pass? Do you think that had a lot to do with it? I think it absolutely impacts um, the reality there. You know, it's not just the inaffordability or lack of 
number of units available for, for renters, for tenants. It's this huge feeling of vulnerability in the housing market right now. And that's not only that, you know, sometimes we think we're not going to be able to stay in these communities that we're part of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to be able to find a unit that works for my family size. Or like I said, I have cats, hard to find um, pet-friendly rental. Um, I could get run evicted or dem evicted in certain communities, but also that my housing might not be safe or appropriate for me in these type of climate emergencies. So I'm, I'm a big um, proponent of representation in all sorts of ways. My community is almost 50% renters. Mm-hmm. I'm the only tenant on council. I do think that matters, and I do think we need more of those voices um, th- in the decision-making seats. Do you think uh, moving forward, and, and, maybe, and talk to me a little bit about your community, but any new housing, whether it be apartments and rentals, whether it be single-family homes or townhouses, uh, has your is your does your community have any policy on moving forward that they must have a cooling system in place when they build these new properties? I think it's something that we're going to uh, continue to look at, and um, it's something that you know if if we can't get it done through the Residential Tenancy Act, I think it's something that I want to look at doing just independently in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, these buildings are often. Um, built a bit differently in terms of step code and whatnot. So it really does tend to be a certain type of older building that is particularly deadly and serves a certain demographic that might not have the ability, like I said, to get out during um, during these type of events. So um, we know my neighborhood, the brow of the hill, has the most seniors and most, you know, sort of low income, people on lower fixed income, mm-hmm. people with disabilities, newcomers, and it was the most deadly in the entire region during the heat dome. Uh, I don't know, was there, was there actually a vote count or was it just, just based on yays and nays? Do you have a sense of uh, how close this motion was, uh, was from passing or uh, any sense of how close it was? I don't have the exact numbers, but it was very, very close. So this, would, this could be brought forward once again? Yeah, it absolutely could. And my worry is then it then goes to the Union of BC municipalities in the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking the fall of 2024 now and then goes to the provincial government for response. They then have to update legislation. You know, we're, we're really delaying something that we know is imminent for folks. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody wants to see another summer like that where our neighbours die. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ms. Nakagawa, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. We were speaking to Nadine Nakagawa. She's a new Westminster City Councillor. She was at the Lower Mainland Local Government Association Conference at Harrison's uh, this weekend. And uh, there was a motion before um, the group there. The motion, of course, um, basically was asking to change the Residential Tenancy Act uh, and make landlords responsible for not only just heating of a a property, rental property, but also its cooling. Now, it didn't pass. uh, And uh, and as Ms. Nakagawa said, it was it was not meaning to be prescriptive in that saying you have to have an air conditioning system, but a cooling system. So those types of policies um, you can debate in regards to what the cooling system would be. Uh, but, uh, you know, it may come back again. But it did uh, raise the bigger question of what do you do when you live in a home and what, what should the cooling system be? Uh, I wanted to talk to Vancouver City Council Sarah Kirby Young, who was at that conference as well, a little bit about Vancouver and what we can expect in the months and perhaps years ahead in regards to uh, cooling of our residents in an era of climate change. Sarah Kirby Young joins us now. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Hi, Jess. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. I know we've had great weather this week. This is a rather cool day. You don't need air conditioning today and probably not the best day to, to, to have this conversation, but it was before the, uh, before the conference, and I think it's important. Um, is there a conversation, just uh, perhaps let's start with the bylaws and rules. Um, where do we sit now in regards to providing a cooling system in new homes here in Vancouver? 
So what I can tell you is a few things, um, and that is that the majority of, I think, new buildings are being built, um, strata, um, definitely, condo, all condo, and the majority of rental and non-market development are already incorporating mechanical cooling, but there is a small number that do not. So what we're doing in Vancouver um, is that effective this year, the four- to six-story residential buildings will have that requirement to have a cooling system, right? It can be air conditioning, heat pumps, et cetera. And then in 2025, we're doing the commercial and uh, seven-story plus buildings uh, to, in, to require that any remaining folks that are not already doing it themselves, that that will be in place by 2025. And the reason for the longer timeline on the taller buildings is that typically um, the process to develop and build those buildings is a lot longer. And so rather than folks having to change course where they have projects that are in stream, that provides more time for the adaptment. Um, of those taller multi-family residential. And what about uh, single-family homes or even townhouse complexes? Yeah, single-family homes where it's not, it's really been incentive programs uh, which are available through the province and City of Vancouver has participated in supporting those too to provide a positive incentive for a single-family homeowner uh, to go and consider uh, a heat pump when it's, you know, time in their existing equipment is up for renewal, but um, our focus really from a regulatory perspective in Vancouver has been on the multifamily residential, not the single-family homes. Mm-hmm. What did you think of uh, what Ms. Nakagawa was talking about? Uh, she says, look, I'm a renter. At many of our um, elected officials, municipal, provincial, federal, are homeowners, and they don't seem to understand uh, that this is there's an urgency to this, and it didn't pass. Uh, what did you think of the, the motion itself? Uh, well, I, I supported it, and I supported that resolution, and I actually think it's incredibly important because it's life safety. Um, we're always balancing affordability for new homes with um, other considerations, but from a life safety perspective, and I think you talked about it earlier, we had hundreds of people that died in their homes because temperatures were going north of 26 degrees, and that's the limit that these cooling systems, um, or the maximum, I should say, would allow, because after that, people's health is severely threatened, and so I think... Personally, it's unconscionable if we are not putting these systems in place. We've got about 52% um, folks in the city of Vancouver who are renters Mm -hmm. for existing. And then for new folks that are moving here and coming in, that's north of 60%. So you're talking about the large majority of your population who I think deserve to ensure that they can wake up the next morning if you have a major heat dome. What do we do with, how do we help residents who live in older buildings? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because um, one of my colleagues, Council Class, and brought a motion last month in April. It was supported unanimously at Council, and it was to look at a incentive program to help retrofit some of the older buildings, the older multifamily, thinking everything from care homes, condos, rental apartment buildings, um, and we should uh, be getting a report back on that, I think, fairly shortly. And I, so I think that's an initiative the City of Vancouver is taking, mm-hmm. recognizing that there's a gap, obviously, in those older buildings where you want to maintain some of that affordable rental stock, but you also want to make sure that people have the same kind of quality of living that folks in the newer buildings do. When you say cooling system, especially for an older building, what would that be? Would be that be like a, a, a heat, uh, cooling, like a pump system, or would it be the ability to buy a cooling system from uh, you know Canadian Tire for five hundred dollars? Yeah, I think we, I think we want to be flexible, and so we're looking at options around that. It really it does get more complicated in some of the older buildings, depending upon what they have in terms of the HVAC, um, or, you know, or sort of older systems in those buildings. So I think flexibility is important there in terms of adaptation. But I know that heat pumps are becoming a more attractive option, especially if there's incentives available.
Mm-hmm. Do you see Ms. Nakagawa, the motion Ms. Nakagawa was talking about, do you see that being introduced once again um, at that conference, perhaps next year or uh, to the UBCM eventually? I mean, did, is, this, is this the last that we've seen of that motion or do you think it'll come back? Oh, I don't think it's the last we've seen of it. Um, I sit on the UBCM uh, executive. Um, so we've got our annual conference coming up in September. Um, and so I suspect that somebody from one of the, you know, hundreds of municipalities across the province is going to bring something forward and that'll be a point of discussion at the September conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Have a great Friday. Well, it was 1000 221 days ago that the World Health Organization was informed of the COVID virus in Wuhan, China. On January 30th, 2020, the World Health Organization declared it a global emergency. Well, today, the World Health Organization downgraded its assessment of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, saying it no longer qualifies as a global emergency. Uh, The World Health Organization's Director General Tedros Gebrasis said that the pandemic has been on a downward trend for more than a year. However, he says the world needs to remain vigilant. Take a listen. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. However, that does not mean COVID-19 is over as a global health threat. Last week, COVID-19 claimed life every three minutes. And that's just the death we know about. As we speak, Thousands of people around the world are fighting for their lives in intensive care units. And millions more continue to live with the debilitating effects of post-COVID-19 condition. This virus is here to stay. It's still killing and it's still changing. The risk remains of a new, of new variants emerging that cause new surges in cases and deaths. The worst thing any country could do now is to use this news as a reason to let down its guard, to dismantle the systems it has built, or to send the message to its people that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. What this news means is that it's time for countries to transition from emergency mode to managing COVID-19 alongside other infectious diseases. That is the Director General Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus of the World Health Organization. Joining me now, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, a man who I'm going to, I don't even know how many uh, briefings he attended with, uh, Adrian Dix, our Health Minister, and Provincial Health Officer, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Keith, welcome. Do you have an idea how many of those briefings you actually uh, attended? About 250, a little more than 250 um, in terms of participating in them. It was quite a quite an extraordinary experience, particularly in the first couple of years of the pandemic, the first year and a half when things were so intense. If you recall, people people would actually stop me on the street and ask me, what's the case number today? How many deaths? You know, knowing I had the numbers every day. Um, and it's just a, sort of an extraordinary journey. But today's announcement, I think, strikes everyone as almost an anticlimactic announcement because I think psychologically so many of us we're in a different space over the last number of months than we were, obviously, at the height of the pandemic. So I think a lot of people just thought the emergency was over. The pandemic's technically not over. And COVID-19, as the Director General just said, is not disappearing. It's here likely to stay, albeit in a much less menacing form because our vaccination rates are so high. And we are, you know, employing... Um, different types of behavior than we did before. You've seen a lot more people wear masks, you know. It's, uh, people are, by habit, 
keeping their distance sometimes. I've noticed that in supermarkets. People aren't crowding together the same way they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's here to stay, but we're in a different different um, level now. And it's right. quite, a quite extraordinary development. Let's touch on what you think uh, we've done well in regards to just the, the response on the health side. What did we do well? What, we, what didn't we, what, did, what, what were some of the negatives in regards to our response within the system? I'm always hesitant, having been deeply immersed in this for so long, to look back in hindsight and say, well, we should have done this and should have done that, because this was an extraordinary situation. We never really knew what to expect here. And I remember one of the very first briefings, I asked Dr. Henry about her power to issue public health orders, and she said, you know what, I'm not a big fan of public health orders. And even though she's issued a number of them, they're far less in number than in a lot of other jurisdictions. And in that respect, I think we got that right, or she got that right, where we didn't have overly restrictive measures. We didn't shutter the, the, the society down. Um, for the longest period of time in this country, you couldn't get a sit-down restaurant meal uh, west of Quebec unless you were in B.C. Um, you had... Uh, um, far more restrictions in Alberta and, and Ontario and parts of Quebec where they had curfews. We never did that. I think that worked. Where I think Bonnie Henry and Adrian Nix will admit where we probably could have done better was in our long-term care homes at the beginning, where that's where the deaths were. If you recall, the Lynn Valley care home, more than 30 residents died there. Um, we had a number of other care homes really hit hard, where Perhaps in retrospect, it, you know, it's easy to say when we didn't never gone through anything like this before. Maybe we should have done something different in the care homes, because those are the most vulnerable people. And keep in mind, this was before we had vaccines. When we before we had vaccines, things looked really frightening. You know, cast your your mind back to March and April of 2020 when the streets were deserted. Everyone was at home. No one was in the. No one was driving. No one was walking. There were severe restrictions on shopping and such. Uh, and it was frightening because the deaths were starting to mount uh, and we had no vaccines in sight. And then suddenly the vaccines appeared and that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Now, broadly, you've sort of touched on some of the healthcare challenges. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, fiscal. Uh, and it's more federal than, than provincial, but mm-hmm. we piled on tons and tons of debt, um, which has led to inflation and something we're trying to deal with now. And we're heading in the right direction. It's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, but it's led to a significant uh, challenge when it comes to inflation. Um, do you think we could have done better there? And I know you, you're hesitant, and I get where you're coming from, uh, because in the case of the federal government, they threw a lot of money at this, number one. And, yeah. and, and in hindsight, there's, there, were, there weren't enough mechanisms in place to make sure the system, uh, we properly used those dollars. There was uh, cases of where... Uh, we probably should demand more accountability as to where those dollars were going, whether it be to corporations or to individuals who probably could be working in some cases. Yeah. I mean, the fiscal challenge is significant, the amount of debt we've piled on because of this. Well, there's, I think, I wouldn't call it panic at the beginning, but there was a bit of, uh, there was quite a state of alarm. It was that our economy about to completely tank because so many jobs were instantly lost and others were working from home. And so the traditional economic activity also disappeared. People weren't spending money like they used to. They were were saving things. People were hoarding goods and materials. The supply chain broke down. all sorts of things were, were looking like a disaster. So the Fed, federal government moved in very aggressively and spent a lot of money. I mean, the CERB, uh, I mean, there were some unintended consequences with the CERB, where it was a motivation not to come back to work for, for many people. We, numerous shows on NW had restaurant owners pleading for young people to come back, but they were making more on, with CERB than they were necessarily to work a, a nine-to-five job or 40 hours a week. So those are some of the things I think in retrospect probably could have been handled a little better, a little more 
oversight and accountability on some of the aid programs. But now we're at a spot where, as you say, inflation is starting to come down. And maybe this was the inevitable price we had to pay to get the country and society through this extraordinary situation. Our guest is Keith Balder, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're uh, talking about COVID and, of course, uh, how we as a province and as a country have um, uh, dealt with COVID, uh, the health implications, the fiscal implications, um, the economy, when you, th- when you talk about supply chain, the political repercussions, even the te- technological implications of you know, working from home. Um, would love to hear from you in regards to what you think we did well and perhaps things we can improve on as well. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Our guest is Keith Baldry, BC's, uh, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, who has covered more than a fair brief, few briefings with uh, uh, Adrian Dix and, of course, uh, Bonnie Henry as well. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. Hey, Jazz. I think one of the craziest things to come out of this is this uh, this division between the, you know, the so-called anti-vaxxers and the vaxxers. Like, I have friends who, if the word COVID comes up, I will just leave the room because I know what's coming. And it just it just seems like that division is, is almost here to stay. I've never seen it before in Canada. So definitely the worst thing, I think, to come out of this. Yeah. Well, well, 85% of us in BC have had two doses. So I think the anti-vax crowd is very small. Uh, but I've been tracking this since day one. I can tell you that the largest number of unvaccinated people are in the Peace River area. And that's a different place in BC. So that's, there's different attitudes up there. Uh, 90, more than 90% of us had at least one dose. Half the population have had... Um, uh, three doses or more. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'd say the anti-vaxxers, well, they can be loud, I suppose, but they are certainly much lower in profile than there were at times when the vaccination program first began. So the vast majority of the people listening right now have had at least two doses. Yeah, there is that uh, silent majority and, and you know, you're, everybody's entitled to their opinion and uh, they, they know what's best for them and their body. But, you know, I think um, the vitriol now is, uh, in this at this moment, seems to be directed more at, uh, at Justin Trudeau and, and, and it's become much more political than that other conversation. But I'm, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more of it during the next federal election, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, let's go to Marilyn in Abbotsford. Hi, Marilyn. Hi there. Um, Keith, I really take exception to a couple of things you said. I think you need to get out in the public a bit more. Uh, there are uh, there are no, no more there are fewer mask wearing people than ever before. My of course daughter there and is. I of course first, there is. Well, but listen to can I finish? <laughs> My daughter and I went to two different concerts this last week. We were the only ones of four in the whole audience wearing masks. Uh, nobody's wearing masks these days, including at school. She's a school teacher. She's only one of three in the whole school that wears them. Nevertheless, she came down with COVID. She is extremely ill in spite of having all her shots. Uh, the thought that now it seems to be over and we got to live with it and, and uh, just no mask wearing in public health places, in the hospitals or anything. And I'm not putting this on you. I'm saying I'm on Henry and Adrian. Uh, this is wrong, and we're going to live with it for years. Marilyn, uh, thank you for your call. Uh, Keith? Pretty well mirror the, the policy in pretty well every jurisdiction now. There's very few mask mandates anywhere, so BC's hardly an outlier on this. There was some controversy in some quarters when uh, Dr. Henry got rid of the mask mandate in hospitals and healthcare facilities. I think that will likely be a debate for some time. I can tell you the BC legislature, there's a lot of tourists in this building, I can tell you that, about 1,000 people a day. I'd say about 
10 to 15 percent of the people wear masks. So it's a very low percentage. I mean, we're definitely seeing way more mask wearing than we saw before the pandemic was even declared. I mean, there was zero mask wearing uh, before the pandemic. Now there's a little bit. But the caller for adversary, there is a, a, still a, a component out there who advocate continued strong measures, whether it's mandatory mask wearing in a lot of situations, um, continued improvements to ventilation. Some still advocate for closing schools. There continues to be a COVID zero, as it's called, element out there that wants much more and continued restrictions. But that's not where the public is at. That's very much a minority view. And public health is all along try to uh, follow along where public opinion is and not to be too far ahead of it or too far behind it. But right now, the public, I think, is on side if, with relaxation of measures. If you made mass mandatory right now, boy, uh, most people wouldn't. Wouldn't, no. wouldn't do it. They just Total wouldn't. Rebellion. No, it's it's you got to have some sort of social cohesion there, and and, and I think that it's the right thing to do. Uh, let's go to Michael in Vancouver. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jazz. What are your thoughts? Hi, I just want to say that I'm so proud to be a Canadian because we gone through uh, the pandemic uh, with our head held high. I think we came out a bit uh, pretty good. High sight is 2020, obviously, mm-hmm. but you should have been to some other countries like Vietnam or Thailand and see the devastation there. Uh, I lost my dad during the pandemic, but I can tell you it could have been a lot, a lot worse. I'm very proud of our government, of uh, my fellow Canadians, and I know there's a vocal minority, um, the convoy truck, the truckers' uh, convoys and all that, but those are minorities. Tiny, uh, tiny minority, which is very vocal because they've been egged on by people like the conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we came out of this uh, pretty well, let yep. me tell you. Michael, thank you for your call. Appreciate it, Keith. we got about 30 seconds. Uh, your final words on it. Yeah, I would say it's a tiny minority of that of that point of view, whether it's a trucker convoy or just the, the anti-public health measure protest, but probably maybe 20, all the polls I've seen, maybe 20 or 25% of the population subscribes to that. But that, again, is a minority. I think the majority are very happy with the declaration today that the emergency is over because in many people's mind, the emergency was over some months ago. Keith, thank you. Have a great weekend. BC government says it is working uh, on legislation that will help communities regulate short-term rentals like Airbnb and and Virbo. Uh, Quebec, the province of Quebec, is also promising to introduce similar legislation. In fact, it was in the mandate letter of BC Housing Minister um, Ravi Kill. Uh, It is a challenge for many, many communities uh, throughout um, the Lower Mainland and throughout British Columbia as well. In fact, the BC Green Party this week is calling on the provincial government to regulate short-term, the short-term rental industry as well. Uh, Rentals have particularly harmed the housing market on the southern Gulf Islands where many long-term properties are being turned into short-term and vacation rentals. It's a major problem for the Gulf Islands in regards to keeping families in the community and making sure workers have a place to live as well. Joining me now is Daniel Wood. He's the general manager of Salt Spring Island Cheese. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Walk me through... uh, the challenges that Salt Spring Island and the Gulf Islands overall are having, because I'm hearing that families, in some cases, are leaving in droves. Uh, exactly. It's, um, it's, it's a real crisis on Salt Spring from uh, this affordable housing. Uh, the, the, the problem is, is that basically all the workers who, who uh, have houses here now have mm-hmm. had them for a long time, and nobody could afford to, to, 
to buy a house with the wages that they make. They just can afford to buy a house with the wages they, they made um, in the 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly retiring, and they're not being, the people who are, who are buying the houses aren't the kind of people who want to work in cafes and grocery stores and small cheese companies like ours, unfortunately. So uh, it's, it's just a problem that... that, that it's getting worse and worse. If you were to hire an employee today or, or another employer there, like, how difficult is it for you to, 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 to convince an employee to move? Because if you say, look, you can work on the Gulf Islands, you can work on Salt Spring, there, you would think there'd be a line of people uh, because of the lifestyle. Uh, how challenging is it for yourself and, and other um, business owners uh, in regards to just making sure you can convince someone to move there? It's uh, it's basically impossible, uh, and it's funny because it wasn't that long ago when people started throwing out the word crisis to describe the situation, and uh, I always rolled my eyes a little bit, frankly, because we exactly what you described would happen. People would apply for a job, and we just we didn't even think about housing. They, we just assumed that, that they would be able to to move and and find a place. And now it's just it's just not feasible. I mean, we we don't make any attempt to to find people from off island uh, when 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 people apply mm-hmm. uh, for jobs. If if they don't have a place in Salt Spring already, we just tell them to forget it. Unfortunately, because it's it's not even feasible. It's just there's so few houses, and, and the ones that are available are so expensive. Do you think Airbnb should just be banned, or uh, other short-term rental apps like Airbnb should they all just be banned? Oh, I don't think so. I mean. So it's funny, you'd think uh, under normal circumstances, uh, talking to, to as you, I don't know if your listeners know about cheese so much, but we're a small cheese company and we sell a surprising amount of, in terms of percentage of sales mm-hmm. from our, our front door. And those are bought by tourists and most of them are living, staying in Airbnbs, right? So obviously under normal circumstances, we would, we would, um, we very much appreciate them. Uh, I, I don't think it's feasible to ban them. First of all, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the rules are, who, who would do that. But uh, just the fact that the Green Party is talking about this and raising this issue is, is fantastic for us. It, uh, we, we've sort of realized that it's a it's small ball in terms of the, the, the progress that gets made. So we're, we're thrilled that they're talking about it. It's just a, a tiny piece in, a, in, a, in, in the puzzle. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's important. We're, um, there's no one hitting home runs on this issue, so... We'll, we'll take the base hits. Uh, is, has there been any uh, proposals and or talk of trying to build short uh, to build rentals for uh, long term residents? I mean, that's part of the problem here in the Lower Mainland. We and it's it's across this country. The federal government got out of the uh, the, the rental business and providing incentives to developers to build rentals, and that's why so many of our you know our rental stock has comes from the seventies and eighties when we were still building, and the federal government was engaged in housing. Uh, do you think you need more of that on the island? I certainly do. It's a political hot issue, like uh, everywhere. I think, frankly, we need the province to really show some leadership, because our uh, Salt Spring is a, is a very unusual local government situation. We have a, the Islands Trust is our land use authority, mm-hmm. um, and I know I'm, I, your listeners probably think it's bad. They have the mayor and, council, mayor and councils too who um, don't support this, but uh, our Islands Trust really takes the cake when it comes to. Um, this or the the black focus on this issue, and uh, you can only basically build uh, single family dwellings on five acre lots in Salt Spring. That's the way the zoning works, mm-hmm. and people sort of carry on like somehow we're the only community in the world that can't find a way to make five acre lots in single family dwellings affordable. But obviously, that's that's just not the case. Nobody builds affordable. I mean, frankly, what anyone normal person would call a mansion. Um, so. 
yes, absolutely. That's a, a, also a very large piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But um, that's a local thing, I and mean, we can't blame the to an extent. I mean, there's obviously talk of um, the the ministry sort of overruling um, zoning cases, and and Salzman, I hope mm-hmm. is. Um, considering that. And the other thing, too, is, of course, the speculation and vacancy tax, which is the other side of, of this issue with, with um, short-term rentals. If you can sort of create an incentive for, 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 um, for, for an economic point of view to, for them to be rented out uh, to long-term and they get the benefit that way, uh, Salt Spring doesn't have, we're not included in that tax, um, again, unfortunately, and um, uh, that uh, really... Um, uh, has a, a huge effect as well. So we, we're, we're very much hoping that we can sort of tackle the Airbnb thing, the short-term vacation rental thing from both sides, as it were, to create the incentive to as well for them to um, be uh, long-term rentals. Well, uh, the government has certainly talked about it, and I think they're following the lead of Quebec. I think Newfoundland's government has also introduced uh, legislation as well, so I think uh, something will be coming relatively soon, and hopefully it'll have some sort of impact for the Gulf Islands as well. You definitely want local folks to be able to well, not only work there, but live there as well. Daniel, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much. I um, uh, really appreciate you having me on. Well, we're hours away from the coronation of King Charles. He has been heir to the throne for 70 years. Charles will be officially crowned uh, in a ceremony tomorrow, where thousands will gather at Westminster Abbey in the surrounding streets of central London to take on what I'm sure will be a glorious display of pageantry. Global National, of course, uh, will be broadcasting from London. Uh, Here's a story from Global National as they prepare uh, for their special tomorrow. King Charles, along with the Queen Consort, Camilla, will be crowned on Saturday. He will be the 40th reigning monarch to be crowned there since 1066. It is a place steeped in history, but it's 2023. A coronation may seem like a throwback to another era. Yet this will be an historic moment, and around Buckingham Palace, excitement is building. Hardcore monarchists are already scoping out spots. He's the king of our country. We've got to support our country. You know, we're not Great Britain for nothing. We're just really excited to be here within the atmosphere and to see the coronation, to see the king being crowned. It's just a momentous occasion. Everyone loves a great party, that pomp, that circumstance. I think it just it lifts all of our spirits. Now, will you be watching the coronation? Here's a caller uh, who just called earlier today on our buzz line uh, telling us why she'll be tuning in. Oh, hello, Jazz. Um, in my family... The monarchy and our British roots are such a big part of our lives, and um, I will be watching the coronation, maybe not live, but I will, you know, take the time to uh, watch it, and um, it means something special to be part of the Commonwealth. Uh, that caller certainly uh, is paying attention. I'm sure many people will be watching, but it's safe to say many won't. Uh, in a recent poll conducted in April by Angus Reid, 52% of Canadians say they, don't, they do not want their country to continue as a constitutional monarchy uh, for generations to come. And nearly all, which is 88% of whom believe it's worth opening the Constitution, a constitutional can of worms to sever the country's royal roots. Uh, those are pretty high numbers. Now, joining me now to discuss the monarchy and Canada is Jamie Watt. Mr. Watt recently ran an opinion column in the Toronto Star arguing it's time to cut ties uh, with the monarchy. Mr. Watt is the executive chairman of Navigator, specializing in complex public strategy issues. Jamie, thank you for joining us today. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So will you be, uh, as a Canadian, watching the coronation? 
I'll be paying. I'll be paying attention to it. I won't be glued to it like I might have been in a previous life, but I'll, I'll be watching it. Now, in your column um, that I read earlier this week, um, which was titled "It's Time for Canada to Cut Its Ties with the Monarchy," you at one point, uh, as, as many Canadians uh, believed in the monarchy. What changed for you? Well, it, and you know, listen, I, I grew up in Anglican. I grew up uh, believing very much in the monarchy, and I think. You know, certainly uh, anybody who, um, I, I don't know anybody who couldn't be absolutely um, astonished by the commitment of Elizabeth. Um, you know, she famously said, however uh, long or short her life not, might be, it will be devoted to her duty and service. And she did, right? And um, mm-hmm. so I think for a long time, we just accepted the monarchy as part and parcel of our lives. But I think what changed for me is that Canada has changed. And um, I think we've grown up. We're a different country. I think this idea that this person that never comes here, that never really, that the only claim that they can make, and, and this is how sort of fighting bankrupt the argument to the side is, is able tradition and history. Well, that's super important, and those things are super important to me, but if that's all you've got, that's not much of an argument. And I'll tell you what really did it for me, though, that pushed me over the edge. A very good friend of mine came to Canada from India mm-hmm. in nothing. His, his family had to say for years, to pay his passage here. His whole family couldn't go. He was the one that was picked. He came here, you know, did the usual jobs a newcomer does and um, worked his way up. He's now the CEO of a major publicly traded company. He's exactly the kind of person that, you know, Canada needs when we want to be in Canada. He couldn't wait to get his citizenship. He did everything he could to get it the minute he could. But, you know, when he had to swear allegiance to the, to the Queen, that was really difficult for him and uh, difficult for all the reasons that we could imagine. And I mean, he would swear allegiance to a maple leaf tree, right? Mm-hmm. But to do that was hard. And that really woke me up and said, you know, what are we doing here? I believe in the Commonwealth. I actually think Elizabeth was ahead of her time on this. You know, she was ahead of her time on most things. So she sold the yacht. She sold the train. She started paying taxes. And she always spoke about the importance of the Commonwealth. And I think that's something we should hang on to, for sure. I don't think we should, should as I said in my column, you know, throw the... Uh, baby out uh, with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think it's just time for us to be different. That's all. And listen, it's, it's more in sorrow than in anger, right? It's not something that I'm on a big tirade about. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, politically and culturally we are there? Uh, it's one thing to say, let's do it. And I understand your argument, but do you think politically and culturally as, as a country we're there? So I think that's two questions in one. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask, answer them separately. Mm-hmm. I think culturally we're getting there very quickly. And I think you saw, I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but, you know, this polling that, um, you know, I think we're almost up to seven, 70% of Canadians don't think Charles should be our monarch. You know, 6% are paying attention to the coronation tomorrow, whereas, you know, when Elizabeth was crowned, the whole country stopped. So I think culturally we are there. I think it is clear that people are clearly time. The problem is politically, and, and that's actually where I talk out of both sides of my mouth. Some of my friends would say that's one of my specialties, but <laughs> the reason I talk out of both sides of my mouth is it's enormously complicated to do, and actually as a practical matter, almost impossible because it would require us to amend the Constitution. We know how difficult that is. So, and the other thing is I'm not entirely sure that I want our politicians you know, when they ought to be worrying about, um, you know, keeping taxes down, they ought to be working, worrying about dealing with inflation, with getting a healthcare system that works, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure that I want them spending a whole lot of time on this. 
Uh, and one, in, in fairness to, to uh, King Charles, it's, uh, one would argue also oh, almost in, incredi- it's incredibly difficult to be relevant as a monarch in the third decade of the 21st century, you know, for for Canada, for any Western nation, the times not just in Canada have changed. I think globally they've changed as well. Yeah, I think they do, but I, I really think they do. But why then, though, if that's true and that he has to really work at that, why on earth would his first visit to be to a non-Commonwealth country? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's given, so I accept that point. So then wouldn't you think if I was you were him, you'd say, I better get myself to a Commonwealth country before I go. Well, he tries, you know, to go to France, and he couldn't because of the difficulties there. So he went to Germany. But what the hell is he doing in Germany, and not at a Commonwealth country? I, I just think it, it's a, it. It just shows he and I. I the reason he went to, to, to in Germany because they're more important as trading partners uh, than we are. But then, then he's he's played his hand as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, do you see? Uh, us walking away from the, the the monarchy in your lifetime, or do you think it's probably going to be a longer journey than that? You know, I think these things, um, a lot of these social changes, you know, come faster than people think. Lots of things we hung on to for a long time ago, it wasn't very long ago, when we said, you know, that things like equal marriage or gay rights maybe were enormously divisive issue, and now we have overwhelming number of people supporting it. But lots of Lisa drinking, uh, lots of things, you know, have changed more quickly than we think. I think it's going to change, or even if it doesn't change technically or politically, I think it's just going to go into irrelevance. I think you're going to see, you know, I doubt that Charles will be on our money. You know, I, I think that, um, uh, it'll atrophy. If, if it's not dealt with explicitly, implicitly, it will atrophy. Mm-hmm. Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Not my pleasure. And, you know, I, I hope Canadians just think about this thoughtfully and, you know, whatever they decide, I, I trust Canadians to come to a good decision. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we asked, should landlords be held responsible for providing air conditioning and rental units and all hail the king or not? Joining me now is our (laughs) usual rep. We're already laughing. I mean, come on. (laughs) Can't even get through the intro. Joining me now is our regular rep, Penalia Halive, TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniel. She's a real estate agent in South Surrey, author, and she's a broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, Welcome. Buongiorno. Well, a few hours ago, a couple of hours ago, we had a guest on the show, Nadine Nakagawa. She's a city councillor from New Westminster, and she, like a lot of local elected officials, were at the Lower Mainland Local Government Association Conference. Now, that sounds very dry, but one of the motions that they introduced there uh, was to hold uh, landlords, and they want to change this to the Tenancy Act, and what it would basically say is that, look, landlords at this point are already responsible for providing heating when somebody rents their property. They should also also be responsible for cooling, which means, of course, air conditioning units or some sort of cooling system. Now, that motion didn't pass. One of the reasons Ms. Nakagawa said it didn't pass is most elected officials are homeowners. They're not renters like her. Uh, she talked a little bit about that motion with me earlier today. Take a listen. So this was an ask that the provincial government would consider changing the Residential Tenancy Act, like you said, to include cooling in rental units. And there's quite a spirited debate on the floor. Um, you know, some people um, sharing their experiences of dropping off cooling units for seniors during during the heat dome in 2021 and the impact that had. And in the end, it did not pass. Um, 
my colleagues from across the Lower Mainland did not um, support that resolution. Now, that motion didn't pass. I suspect it'll be brought back uh, next year or the year after. I don't think it's going anywhere. But it's an interesting conversation. Got lots of calls uh, from our on our buzz line as well. Leah, let me start with you. What do you think of the idea, in uh, especially in, in an era of climate change, and we all know about, of course, the heat dome from 2021, where 619 people died in our province because of uh, in, in a week uh, because temperatures were above 40 degrees Celsius. Do you think this is something we should consider, or do you think it's just quite onerous in regards to cost for landlords? Well, I think it's definitely something we should be doing because the temperatures are going to continue to rise. And unfortunately, I believe we'll have a heat dome again in the future. And just every year, our temperature is rising through the summer. So I think, you know what, build it into the rental price, you know, whatever your monthly rental cost is, you know, you build it in. But I think everybody should have that. Like you said, the 619 deaths during the heat dome, like that should never have happened and shouldn't happen in the future. Now that we've experienced that, we should learn from that and we should be giving air conditioning. And I think all new buildings too, any new townhouses, apartments. I know Vancouver City Council back last year in May, Mm -hmm. they approved the Omnibus Climate Emergency Building Report, which recommends that new buildings must have air conditioning starting January 2025. They have to be three levels and higher. And I think that's a great idea. I think every city should adopt that for new buildings. And I think landlords should be concerned for their tenants. You want tenants? You should be able to keep them cool. Just build it into the price. That's the way I would do Sarah, you're in the real estate industry. You deal with uh, a lot of homeowners. You deal with a lot of landlords. Your thoughts on this one? It just seems so easy, doesn't it? That we would just, you know, <laughs> magically like every free air conditioner for you. You get an air conditioner. The problem is actually like not just logistics. First of all, rents are extremely high as it is right now mm-hmm. and onerous. You add on to the cost of just purchasing air conditioning, the cost of air conditioning, which is not to say that tenants do not deserve to, the comfort of their home. I mean, let's face it. It used to be 10 years ago. You could hardly wait for summer. Now you're like, dear God, what hap- is going to happen this summer? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the, the issue. But for instance, I mean, I, I sell condos, townhouses, all those kind of things. A lot of the condo towers um, that are like eight, 10 stories high, a lot of glass towers and um, in the White Rock, South Surrey area, but also much higher in the downtown core. You don't even have the ability to install anything except a portable air conditioner. Most buildings have bylaws about uh, window air conditioners because they feel that they look unsightly um, and that, you know, if they're not properly installed, they can actually pose a danger to people on the ground. So there's a yeah. whole kind of mess of things that go along with it. Whether, whether like, it's, it's, it's not that I don't think that people shouldn't be in, uh, able to have air conditioning. I think it's a great idea. It's just how to implement it and how those costs are going to actually offend, affect tenants. Because you tell landlords that they have to provide air conditioning in a townhouse or a condo, <laughs> and guess whose rent's <laughs> going to go up, like 250 bucks a month. Yeah, wow. and, and I also think um, if you are going to implement something like this, and it's not going to say it has to be, a traditional air conditioning system, you can say, look, you've got to provide some sort of cooling system. It could be picking up one of those smaller units that you can buy, three mm-hmm. to four hundred dollars um, at air, yeah. at uh, at Canadian Tire or Costco, but it's not going to you know cool the entire building. It may just be one room, so that's part of the challenge. But I think you know all new builds should have some sort of cooling totally. system, as as uh, as Leah said. Absolutely. The challenge is when you have elderly people living in subsidized housing with an uh, in an older apartment buildings where there's lots of older stock. Uh, from the 70s and 80s, that's where the challenge is going to be. And, 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 and I, I would 
I would certainly suggest for those older buildings that they revisit having window air conditioners. The portable ones are a little bit ungainly. They're difficult for seniors to actually move around and pro possibly install. Mm -hmm. uh, because but from, they, from they what I heard from... Ungainly. Sorry? Oh, sorry. Sorry. From what I heard from people from older buildings that did buy air conditioners, it cut out their power because the grid was not built for that. Yeah. So a lot so, of them and, had and, problems and, during the heat dome. And, and that's the thing, right? So that, so like whether a window air conditioner, now like a lot of, like I said, a lot of the uh, buildings necessarily don't want them because they want them to be properly installed. There's all sorts of, like what we forget is you install a window air conditioner in a, in a rental building and you get your friend to install it for you and it's not properly installed and it falls out of the window. Then we're talking insurance issues. It's just like, I know that sounds crazy, but it's, it's just not yeah. as simple as what a nice idea it would be. And literally, with these kind of things, sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, and eventually we are going to have to get True. there, whether it's unsightly or not, whether we have the policies or not. Yeah. If, if, the, if the temperature is going to continue to rise. Whatever we have to works. Do, yeah, look, they have those air conditioners on windows. They're kind of unsightly, but they're all over Europe, Asia, Africa, exactly. uh, mm -hmm. Australia. It is The world deals with it, and we as Canadians have to wrap yeah. our heads around this yeah. uh, as and well. We're getting warmer, so yeah, it's going to have to happen. That is absolutely <laughs> true. Well, coming up next. I'm always the coolest, though. We are speaking to our Friday rap panel. Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels um, are joining us. Well, let's uh, cast our eyes towards Great Britain. Food prices rose 19% year-on-year in March. The inflation rate peaked at 11% in October, and at this point, it's at 10%. In fact, Britain is the only Western European country with double-digit inflation, but somehow, somehow, uh, they've managed to set aside $170 million for a coronation for Charles, who let's be honest, has been heir to the throne for a very long time. Seven decades he's been waiting. So the coronation is this weekend. Uh, Global National, of course, will be there broadcasting all the uh, pageantry. Take a listen uh, to one of their reports uh, filed earlier today. King Charles, along with the Queen Consort, Camilla, will be crowned on Saturday. He will be the 40th reigning monarch to be crowned there since 1066. It is a place steeped in history, but it's 2023. A coronation may seem like a throwback to another era. Yet this will be an historic moment, and around Buckingham Palace, excitement is building. Hardcore monarchists are already scoping out spots. He's the king of our country. We've got to support our country. You know, we're not Great Britain for nothing. We're just really excited to be here within the atmosphere and to see the coronation, to see the king being crowned. It's just a momentous occasion. Everyone loves a great party. That pomp, that circumstance, I think it just it lifts all of our spirits. Uh, Leah, let me start with you, first of all. Will you be sitting on the couch tomorrow just watching TV for hours upon hours? Uh, okay, for starters, mm -hmm. they found the one American there in that package. So. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but I will not be watching the coronation of King Charles III. I can't be bothered. Um, it's going to rain, which I kind of find is funny. I think Camilla should not be named Queen. I think Canada should just exit the Commonwealth, leave the monarchy in the past where it belongs. It's so outdated. I will not be watching. And and I'm pretty sure Sarah feels the same way. Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, for Le Leo's usually pretty diplomatic. For her to come out swinging like that, I go, whoa. No, but, no, no I, I'm, yeah, you know, the queen was great. You know, it was, she was around for 70 years yeah. and she made some missteps and stuff like that. But let's face it. Camilla drove Dad Diana out. Nobody's going to ever forget that. And I don't care about two decades of trying to make yourself look like you're wonderful. They just aired some stuff the other night about 
her laughing at some of the indigenous people that were performing a dance and she just thought what? it was hysterical and Oh yeah, awful. no, classy lady. She's just yucking it up because she doesn't understand a culture that's different from hers. I mean, I think we all know where she can stick her crumpets. But anyhow, <laughs> that's it. That's another story altogether. They, you know, the country left Brexit. The country drove away Harry and Meghan, who were literally mm -hmm. could have been the face of something new and different. Instead, we've got like Peg and Buttons, which is the nickname for William and, and Kate, you know, who Peg. don't do anything, like literally do nothing. They, I mean, they, they went to a pub this week. Oh, my goodness. That must have been exhausting. How did you ever do it? Better run back home, Kate, and get your hair blown out for tomorrow. I'm sorry. It's just all a little too white for me. And this is a multicultural yeah. country and a multicultural commonwealth. People, let's get it together. Well, this their people are starving. Like you said, inflation is crazy. And yet, but we can pay for a coronation. You know? I know. I know. He, and Charles himself, uh, you know, they've estimated his personal wealth at six hundred million to one point six yeah. billion pounds. So it is. It's. It's a. It, there is a, a huge it's difference really. between working class Brits and and and, and certainly I'm sure the royalty. Africa, Africa, and India would probably like back oh, yeah. a lot of their jewels. Oh, They're that, not yeah. Yeah. everything else that was plundered. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, actually, <laughs> I was looking at the number. The British first arrived. India represented twenty. 24% of the global economy. There and then when they, yeah. when they left 175 years later, it was 4% of the global economy. So yeah. I, yeah. I don't think there's been too many people cheering in India. But uh, Leah, what about the idea of William and Kate? I know uh, Sarah's not convinced, but what if, what if they had just skipped <laughs> Charles nice and Camilla it. and just moved to William and Kate and said that's a different generation? Would that, would that help? Would it that is, have helped? but I... I... <laughs> I know how Sarah feels, but I'm kind of with Sarah for the fact that they're very stuffy. They are like a Charles and Camilla. So they're just a younger version of them, unfortunately. They I rode do around. Harry, yeah, they they, they were in would have been on that tour, you know, riding around in the back of the Jeep and all that, yeah. like colonialists. It was like, it was like straight out of the 1950s. Sticking their I mean, hands through the detail, but all the day. <laughs> Yeah, they're very stuffy. Yeah, they're 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 not going to be the new generation that's going to bring everybody together. I think they kind of missed the boat on Harry on that. I think he would have. Megan, I'm not a big fan of, but I think they could have, you know, warmed up to her. But I think, I just think those two are not going to be the new coming. I really don't. I yeah. think they're just going to be another version of Charles and Camilla. Well, <laughs> I don't think I I don't think Megan stood a chance. She actually wanted to work no. and do stuff, and that's completely against the grain of the royal family. Her hands were tied. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but the, you know, unless I'm going to stand in my garden and talk to my plants and maybe go to a pub occasionally. I'm done. So, yeah. uh, I think uh, our, one of our guests uh, who was on earlier to, today was saying, you know, I, I don't think anything's going to happen. People are just going to be even more disinterested as the years and years go by. I think BC it's Ferries, fading. BC Ferries already yeah. announced that they, they are not after the Queen died. They're not putting up King no Charles pictures. picture. Yeah, uh, and and, yeah, and uh, the money as well. So. Yeah, so there you go. It's bit by bit. Uh, I guess that is the fate of the royal what family. What do you feel, Jazz? Well, I, I think I think people are just disinterested. <laughs> I think you're right. I think yeah. after the Queen, it's uh, you know people have moved on it is what it is leah sarah thank you <laughs> thanks guys thanks for listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can always listen to the jazz joe hall show live monday to friday from 3 to 6 p.m on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.